This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio-related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first-ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Also, don't forget about our book, Thinking Critically, from fake news to conspiracy theories, using logic to safely navigate the information landscape. If you're interested in exploring how logic can be used to better help you to discern fact from fiction. The information landscape is perilous, but with the help of this book as your guide, you will always be able to find your way towards truth. It's available on Amazon today. Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Today, I'm joined by Jacqueline Ferraro, who is currently the group director of petrography over at the CTL Group. She has experience in evaluating concrete structure materials and aggregate using polarized light microscopy, scanning electron microscopy with X-ray spectroscopy, and other petrographic methods. She performs petrographic and microscopic examinations on rocks, minerals, cement, and other construction materials to assess the quality and condition of concrete. Her expertise also includes, but is not limited to, structure and material issues pertaining to strength and setting issues, freeze-thaw and chemical-related deterioration, alkali silica reaction, and alkali carbonate reaction, delayed atringite formation, fire damage assessment, scaling, debonding, and delamination. Uh, she earned, earned her bachelor's and master's degrees in geology from the University of Iowa, uh, where her master's degree focused in structural and economic geology. Anyway, Jackie, thank you so much for agreeing to come on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, fantastic to have a geologist on the show. You would now be number two. However, the first geologist that I had on the show was more from a comedic standpoint, because that's what he's interested in right now. Oh, not okay. so much not so much geology, but today we'll dig a little bit into uh, more of the geology. And anyway, I am very curious to kind of hear how it is that you became interested in science in the first place. So kind of where did it all start for you as far as uh, your interest in science? Yeah, so I think that my interest in science really started when I was a kid, but I didn't know it. Um, I really was the kid that asked a lot of questions. Um, I grew up in a house that had a forest preserve in the backyard, so I spent a lot of my time exploring back there and finding different plants, rocks, animals, and I would you know, take what I found and just go to the library, find the nonfiction books that related to those things. Uh, I was never big on like the fiction books that we were assigned in school. Uh, I always wanted that reality. Um, so yeah, I think that the nature aspect mixed with the science aspect is really where the geology came in for me and I didn't realize it yet. Uh, but Growing up in Chicago, you know, you don't really hear about geology. Um, it's more career paths of 
some type of business stance uh, standpoint or medicine. So when I decided to go to college, um, you know, medicine, that's science. So I, I took off with a bio pre-med major and three years in, I decided it wasn't for me. I spoke with my advisor at the time and she asked me probably the most life-changing question. And she asked, what did you do or what did you like to do as a kid? And I told her exactly what I just told you. And she said, well, what about geology? And I said, what's geology? <laughs> and so she uh, registered me for a geology course and I loved it. Um, so I switched my major about two or three months in and just took a completely different track. Um, in, in geology, I ended up taking structural geology um, which just, it was just a subject that I really loved. Um, it, I don't quite know why. I think that the deformation mechanisms that happened interest me and the level at which they happen at. So the microscopic level, the regional level, and then also a tectonic level. Um, structural geology also incorporated the different subsets of geology. You know, you didn't just look at the faults that were happening. You looked at the faults that were happening within that rock type, the rheology of that rock type. Um, so the, the incorporation of not just structural geology was, was something that I liked a lot. So that's interesting that you said that you, you went down the pre-med route and you did it for three years. That's a long time to devote towards one particular path and then all of a sudden decide that, hey, this isn't for me. But I mean, you know, good for you to finally, you know, admit to yourself that this isn't working out. Because imagine if you had ended up graduating with the degree, I suppose, in uh, biology, was it? Yeah. Yes. Um, in biology. And then you're like, man, I don't I don't even want to do this. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't, was... don't want to. <laughs> Go ahead. No, it was definitely a. Uh a bit of a panic attack moment. Um, and I think my parents had some panic attacks as well from it. But, uh, you know, I, I've never looked back. It's, it's just been the best decision I've made for myself. I think a lot of people actually go through something similar. I mean, I know myself, I mean, I, I have a bunch of family members, a bunch of friends that do the same thing where you know, you go into college with one thing, you think that that's what you want to do, and then you change it to something completely else. And for me, I went in as a mechanical engineer because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I knew that I liked technical things, science, et cetera. Um, and that with engineering would be like a good career path. And I had some, an engineer in the family who was very influential and uh, getting me interested in science, engineering, technology, things of that nature. So I went into college as a mechanical engineer. Uh, and then after the first year, I was like, I don't really like this. This isn't kind of what I am passionate about. So then at that point, that's when I decided that I wanted to switch to geology. Uh, and then of course I changed when I was actually in graduate school, but I did end up finishing my degree in geology which I have no regrets about, even though I don't work in geology now. Um, I thought that the program that I went through was absolutely fascinating. Uh, 
I'm a huge fan of geology in general because I just think it's really, really interesting learning about planetary processes. I mean, also the seeing the integration of the various other sciences into geology, I thought was fascinating. So you have um, you have like mineralogy, which is a, essentially a confluence of geology with chemistry or uh, the structural geology. I was really drawn to structural geology as well. Um, I have something where certain visuals really, really appeal to me. So one of the reasons like I'm really drawn to certain types of mathematics is not so much because of the types of problems that are being solved, but the types of math that you get to use from a visual standpoint. So with, with structural geology, I thought it was really cool because of all of the different diagrams and the, the, the way that you mapped all the different types of maps um, that were being made, yes. as well as the, um, you know, you, you were talking about the, you know, like faulting things of that nature. So the various types of faults, but just like going through the textbook, like a structural geology textbook. And there's so many really interesting graphs. And then also above and beyond that, I've always been super passionate about physics. So structural geology is kind of the, I think of like an intersection between geology and physics. Yeah. I know that there's an actual section of uh, geology called geophysics, which I studied as well, but I always thought that the, that structural geology was more of like more, more appealing from a uh, from 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 an intersection of geology and physics standpoint, I suppose, where you could really see how it's applied to planetary processes. Where where when when I took geophysics courses, it was more like remote sensing techniques and things of that nature. It was it was basically how could I view what was going on below the Earth's surface versus with structural geology, it's actually describing what's happening, not what can I view below the Earth's surface to see what's going on but trying to describe what's actually happening. So anyway, I guess what I'm saying is I can understand why you were, why you were drawn to structural geology. It's very interesting. It is very interesting. Um, yeah, it's sort of along the lines of what you're saying. It, um, I was really, I, I really liked applying what I learned in the classroom for structural geology to the field. So that, you know, the geoscience six week course that you have to take and you do the mapping of the mountains. Um, actually that, that six week course was the first time I had ever been in the mountains. Um, but I loved it so much and, and I really excelled at it. And, um, yeah, just, just mapping at the surface and then being able to, uh, project what you think is happening at depth too. That was so, so I'm guessing what you did was you went out into the field with a compass and you did a bunch of like a stretch, what is it, strike and dip me measurements or something of that nature. And then you just yes. built maps of the region? Yes. Yeah, okay. So for those who are uninitiated, what exactly is a strike and dip real quick? Yeah. I don't... So, <laughs> um, it's just uh, measurements in the horizontal and uh, vertical field of um, the bedding of a rock or, or an outcrop, I should say. Okay. Yeah, I because it's been so long since I've actually done it, and yeah, that's a pivotal tool that a lot of geologists use in the field. They go and do the strike, strike and dip measurements when they're trying to map a certain region, um, because it can help you figure out what the layers are doing, yes. in various uh, various parts within a certain region. And you know, you're talking about the field camp. I I did a field camp as well when I was um, when I was doing my undergraduate degree. 
And unfortunately, I did a more environment, like we had two paths. We had a hard geology path, and then I had what was known as an environmental geology path. Uh, I ended up going down the environmental geology path because it allowed me to take more courses out of the department. So I was also, also interested in improving my math education. So I was taking a lot of math courses uh, beyond geology. But because of that, I ended up taking the environmental, uh, the environmental geology field camp or field course, which is, I don't know, it was like six weeks or eight weeks or something like that over a summer semester. And unfortunately, we didn't get to go out west and see anything cool. Like it was, it was kind of low, it was kind of local. And we did a bunch of soil stuff, which I'm not super interested in. Um, as you know, around here, it's not very geologically interesting. So we examined right. a lot of like glacial till. And uh, so till is essentially a word for sediment for those who are unfamiliar. But yeah, we just were looking at a bunch of like sediments and things of that nature because there's plenty of it, which is great for farming. As you know, <laughs> yeah, we have we have great farmlands over here, but it's not terribly interesting from a geologic standpoint. So I was always slightly jealous of the hard rock people that went out west because they actually went to like Colorado or Utah or somewhere that is far more geologically interesting than uh, around here. But I'm curious, where did you do your where did you do your field camp? Um, we were in Montana. In Montana, in Montana okay. yeah. So right. we stayed at the university out there. And actually there were a lot of other schools that were there at the same time. So you weren't just, um, you know, creating that network with the people at your school, but you were also networking with people at other schools. So I actually um, became friends with a lot of people from Idaho and Utah. And so I still talk to those people too which those are, those are great uh, networks to have for, you know, future and career. You're in your bachelor's degree and you're going to look for a job after, or you're going to go to your master's, but either way, you're going to need that career path after. And those people um, can help you on that track. They, they might have a job where, you know, there's a job opening and, and you can apply to that. So and that's kind of where I got the job at CTL Group. So, really, through one of your networks at Field Camp? Uh, not at Field Camp, but um, in my uh, graduate degree. I see. Okay. Yeah. So, anyway, while we're on the topic of your graduate degree, uh, I'm curious as to what you did your master's research on. So, the title of my thesis is the relationships between deformation and mesothermal veins in the Sunshine Mine area in the Coeur d'Alene District of Idaho. Um, so before I go further, I kind of want to explain what mesothermal veins are. Sure. And because um, I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> People listening probably don't know either. Yeah. So, so um, you probably know what a vein is, though. Um, I do. I don't yeah. know what uh, mesothermal, I could, I could guess, but I'd rather just have you explain, so go for yeah. it. <laughs> so um, a mesothermal vein is a, a type of deposit that happens within a planar fractured surface, and it's from some type of hydrothermal activity, and usually that hydrothermal activity is at a moderate temperature, moderate pressure, and uh, that's around like 200 to 300 degrees Celsius. So if people are um, 
wondering in Fahrenheit, it's, you know, upper 300s to upper 500s. Um, so yeah, so the relationship between the deformation and the mesothermal veins, um, the region that I worked in, the Coeur district, they are known for producing lead, zinc, and silver since the 1880s. Um, but the district did not have a predictive model for uh, exploration based on the, the um, structural controls for the ore deposits. So my work pretty much focused on the geometric and spatial relationships between mineralization and the major structures that host the mineralization. Um, I was able to establish a relative timing of the mineralization with respect to the um, structures that host the mineralization. Um, so the fault kinematics in the area, there was um, like a regional fault system and it was superimposed on regional deformation fabrics. And what I mean by deformation fabrics is like the planar fractured surfaces that I was describing uh, where the veins deposit. So the intersection between that fault system and the deformation fabrics is pretty much where I projected where the uh, silver ore de uh, deposition would be. So that was uh, an exploration model that I developed for that mine. And that was, that was my thesis. That was what my thesis was on. That's really interesting. So did that end up actually being used by any sort of, um, any sort of mining companies or anything of that nature? Um, I, you know, I, I think it was um, specifically for the mines in that Coeur district region. Um, I did have people that worked at the mines contact me mm -hmm. because, it, because it's not just Sunshine Mine. There's several other mines in that area. And um, it wasn't, I, I never had someone from Sunshine Mine contact me, but it was from the neighboring mines and uh, spoke with them on LinkedIn about my findings. And yeah, so actually um, when you have your, your thesis online, uh, you can see where it's pulled up and like what countries people are reading from. And it's been pretty global that I've seen my thesis being pulled up, which is pretty exciting. No, yeah, that's, that, that's, uh, that's awesome. So people from all around the world are reading your thesis because they found it that, that important. Um, I know that it only pertains to one certain area, but probably a lot of the methodologies that were developed within the thesis, within your work, um, could be then moved laterally over into mines anywhere in the world, so. Yeah, yeah, likely, definitely. Yeah, perhaps, uh, perhaps, that, perhaps that's why. That's, uh, that's really cool. I cannot say the same about my master's thesis. My master's thesis was super, well, it wasn't in geology, uh, it was in physics, and it was so esoteric that I don't even know what uh, I don't see any sort of app, uh, applicability or application in the real world anytime soon. It, uh, it was dealing with some sort of bizarre material known as solid helium, which only occurs under very intense pressures and essentially almost 
zero Kelvin or absolute zero. And like I said, not nearly as applicable as your research. So <laughs> I'm sure you learned a lot, a lot. Yeah, no, I, I did. It was uh, definitely an interesting project. It wasn't my first choice, but I ended up, that's where I ended up. And um, I thought it was interesting, but again, from an applicability standpoint, I, um, I, I don't see it translating over to the real world anytime soon. But anyway, I digress. So, all right, so you've got your master's degree. Uh, you graduate, you met some contacts and you found out about your current employer, CTL Group. So I'm just curious as to why you decided to go with them. So you were introduced via uh, you know, a mutual friend or something of that nature. And I'm just curious why it is that you know, you were like, okay, this is kind of where, uh, this is this is where I'd like to work. So I'm assuming you applied a bunch of different other places. I'm sure you probably had offers elsewhere, but why CTL Group? Yeah. Um, CTL Group really was the package deal for me. Um, it was a place where I could continue my education. So concrete photography is not taught in college. Um, you do need a geology background in order to become a concrete photographer, but additionally, you need five years under a qualified photographer. So that qualified photographer needs to have at least five years of experience. And yeah, so it's, it's continued education over the next five years from when you start, um, as well as I just was really, excited to work with and collaborate with these other experts in other fields. And th these experts are really well known to the people here at CTL Group are some of the most intelligent people I've met. And, you know, we have architects, structural engineers, mechanical engineers, materials engineers, um, as well as chemists. We have coding specialists and of course, photographers. So the cross-disciplinary learning as well as the concrete photography learning was uh, a big selling point for me. Um, when I interviewed uh, for this position at CTL Group, the people were very nice and they interacted with each other in like this close, genuine way. Uh, and I know that when you go into work every day, you have to like the people that you're around. So that was just an additional draw for me too. So yeah, it was, it was pretty much the whole package for me of why I chose CTL Group. It sounds like it. I mean, you get to be surrounded by brilliant people. So of course you can improve your own skill set. Uh, continuing education and then liking your coworkers. I'm I'm glad that you brought that up because I can't think of anything worse than being stuck in a toxic work environment or an environment where you just don't like feel, you don't feel like you fit in. Exactly. Or yeah, so so yeah, that's that's fantastic, and that you found something that you kind of found some place that you could call call home. Because as you know, as an adult, we spend a good chunk of our time at work. Exactly. <laughs> we do it for forty plus years. Anyway, um, what exactly is petrography? Because um, there are probably some people who are listening that don't know exactly what petrography is. Yes, so petrography is the study of rocks under a petrographic microscope, essentially. Um, but what 
concrete vitrography is, is just the study of the construction materials or the construction making materials, like parts of the materials. So if you have concrete, um, you have all the components of concrete that we study as well. We look at those under various types of microscopes. Um, and, and typically it's in a very forensic way. So we, we look at these elements to solve a problem. And that's, that's the gist of what we do, the summary, I guess. The summary, rocks under a microscope. Rocks <laughs> and, and all the other construction materials. And yeah. all the other construction materials. So <clears throat> we're, uh, so, so, so your current role is technically, so you're a group director, um, but also as far as from like a scientific standpoint, what exactly do you do? What is, what is a day in the life of Jackie look like at CTL group? So where, what science are you doing? Well, obviously it's petrography, but what exactly does that look like? Um, so yeah, I usually get a project in that, um, our client tells us something's wrong with um, maybe, I guess something the listeners would be familiar with is when you see concrete that's chipping at the surface, um, you just see these chunks out of the surface. Um, that's a pretty common one. We call that spalling or scaling. And um, so say I get a spalling or scaling project in, I do some type of initial observations on these cores um, and then we cut the core in half and we polish one side of it. We look at things like the aggregate, uh, aggregate gradation, the distribution, um, the color of the concrete. Uh, then with the other half, we end up taking a thin section and we take a little billet and grind it down so we can look at that under a cross-polarizing light microscope. The cross-polarizing light, cross light microscope is uh, that typical microscope that everybody sees, you know, that if you, if you picture a microscope in your head, that's, that's what everyone's gonna see. So we look at the concrete under that microscope and we look at the cement grains, um, any, any other possibly secondary deposits that are happening. And um, we take all of that information and write a report for the client saying, you know, from this issue, uh, this is what we're seeing is causing this issue. And yeah, we get all different types of projects and that, that, that's pretty much what we do from a, a technical standpoint. So it's primarily dealing with cement then? Um, no, we, we deal with um, concrete, cement, um, the supplementary cementitious materials that are used, um, we used, we, we study fly ash, um, all these, all these components that go into concrete that, okay. um, and things like mortar, bricks, uh, you know, those dimension stone, like decorative stone, any type of material that you build with, we, look at. Okay. All right. And so I am fairly ignorant to building materials. Uh, what is the difference between concrete and cement? Because I noticed that you address them as two different things. 
I did not know that. So I'm yeah. curious as to what they are. And actually, yeah, I mean, I should have known that a lot of people don't know the difference. So cement is actually the stuff you see in the bag, you know, the just that gray powder. Um, and then concrete is the mix of that gray powder with water, with aggregate, maybe some type of admixtures, um, possibly some other components. So concrete is the end result and cement is just a component in concrete. Okay, I see. And when you say aggregate, is there a, is that just like loose rocks? Is there a particular type of material that is generally composed of the aggregate that's used in concrete? So yeah, it, it's just loose rocks. Um, we, we refer to them as coarse aggregate and fine aggregate. The fine aggregate would be um, more of a, a sand size particles. And then the coarse aggregate would be something that maybe has uh, largest dimension of, uh, depends, it depends on the structure, but imagine something around uh, three quarter inch size. Um, okay. And both of those components go, go into the concrete. Um, the aggregate type varies. Usually people like to use the aggregate that's local in their state or wherever they may be. Um, but we, we do test that aggregate individually as well. Um, so each aggregate that goes in, we need to say whether it's compatible with you know, cement. It, it can't have a reaction or else you're going to see cracking, you're gonna see this, these different issues that occur. So, yeah. Yeah, that would make sense because if you were, you know, if, if the aggregate that you're mixing with the cement is not agreeable or there's some secondary type of reactions taking place, that'll, that, that would definitely weaken the overall concrete. And then whatever structure you're using to build that concrete with is then going to be weakened and that could cause serious problems. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Okay. So you say that you get cores in. Now, is this from like the field, like concrete or whatever material that's already installed somewhere and then you're trying to diagnose the problem or is it something from like uh, from a manufacturing standpoint like hey we're a manufacturer of this particular type of building material and we want your opinion on how we're doing it essentially I, I suppose uh, maybe it's both it's probably it both. Is, <laughs> it's, that's exactly right it is both um, I would say in petrography we usually see the aftermath, we see what went wrong. Um, but, you know, there's, there's some cases where we get things in before they're actually um, in placement. So yeah, it's, it's, I would say maybe 75% already in, in placement and then 25% prior to placement. I would hope it would it would shift more towards before placement because if you could catch the problems beforehand, that'd probably be the best way to go. Yeah. Um, so, I I, in petrography, it's it, we do see more of the aftermath, but the other uh, groups in our company, they'll see the before math. 
okay. yeah, they, they'll be the ones testing the raw materials. They'll be the ones evaluating mixed designs. Um, but yeah, that that's not really my expertise. So you see things afterwards or um, the, they, they notice something after the material is already installed. Are there, do you, are you informed of what actually went wrong? Like, like do, they, do they tell you like, hey, there was a collapse, here's some samples, can you tell us why it actually happened? Or maybe not a collapse, maybe not something that dramatic, but do you, um, are you told why these things, like what exactly happened? Um, sometimes. Uh, sometimes, okay. Sometimes it's, and, and you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt too, because it's, you know, if I, if I tell you we're having this issue, this is what I think is happening but I'm not an expert in it. And you're the expert, you, you're the one that has to figure it out. So you can listen to what they're saying, but ultimately it comes down to what are you seeing in the samples? What, mm -hmm. what am I evaluating? What, what's in front of me? And you know, the, the person telling you what they think it is could be completely wrong. So you definitely have to gauge that. Yeah, I could definitely see how the beforehand, you know, if you knew what exactly went wrong with a sample, that that could definitely bias your investigation. But it would be interesting to find out afterwards. Be like, okay, well, I don't know what happened. So here's a sample. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my investigation and then come up with the conclusion. This is what I think happened. And then actually find out what went wrong. What, uh, went wrong. Yeah, and, and that does happen sometimes, especially um, in litigation cases where, you know, they don't, they don't want to bias you. So you're basically going into it blind and you, you form your opinions and then you find out later and you're like, yes, I was right. Or, <laughs> oh, okay, I see where that could be. And yeah, it's just, it is a very interesting and diverse process. So you mentioned litigation. So you have you actually done investigations that were a part of lawsuits? Uh, yes. Uh, really? Quite a few. Yes. Quite a few. Okay, that's uh, that's really interesting. I I mean I can imagine that the type of work that you're doing you're talking about like structures perhaps failing. So yeah, there would probably be lawyers involved with uh, with something like that. Yes, because and then. Yeah, I mean, structures failing, injury, death, unfortunately, probably sometimes. Uh, so exactly. That, lots of exactly lots of money, means. lots of money lost as well. <laughs> yes, usually um, when they go to litigation, it is a big dollar amount. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyway, so you're now you've been working in industry for a while now, and I am curious as to the differences between your academic experience, like doing science in academia versus how you do science in your lab at CTL group. So like where, where do the two overlap? Where are they different? Just, I'm just really curious to hear your uh, thoughts on that. Yeah, so I think that in academia, um, there's more of an open platform of kind of ex exploring your heart's desires. And you have multiple opportunities for financial support, you know, getting grants from various places. And so 
you're kind of looking at more of a, a theoretical approach sometimes where in industry you're working within a budget and you have that one financial source that you're one client for this issue that you're seeing. And sometimes that financial source, that client, either you know, you present this information to them and they don't want you to go any further or they don't have the money to pursue going further. So you have to just stop evaluating. And as scientists, you know, we're really curious and we want to find out more and more. And to just kind of stop right in the middle of it, if you want to figure out what went wrong, you need to do it on your own time and not, not on the business, uh, not on the company's time. You know, this is like after five o'clock, you, you want to figure it out, you figure it out on your own. But, you know, that's, that's pretty much where the industry breaking information is formed. You know, these people that stay past five o'clock that really develop um, more knowledge for, for the rest of the industry. And there's a lot of people at CTL group that do that. Um, there's a lot of hard workers here. Uh, but yeah, so I think in, in my experience, I've always sort of had an industry focus. You know, I, it pretty much started with my master's being able to apply what I was seeing to a real world scenario where sometimes I think in academia, um, we get bogged down of like what's on our computer screen and we don't see outside of that. Um, we don't apply it or make sure that it applies to the real world. Yes, I uh, definitely can relate to the lack of applicability sometimes uh, within academic work. However, some of, the, some of the work, while it may lack application in the real world in the immediate, uh, it could take decades. Uh, it could take decades to manifest itself to where people finally realize that, hey, this work that was done, it has some actual market value, we can use it. It starts, you know, more work was built upon that work and then it makes sense. Yes. Uh, I know. I know. For me, I definitely like to see some sort of application in the immediate future, not something that's like decades down the line. So I would consider myself more of an applied scientist. At least I like applied science more, even though I've done a lot of theoretical work myself. I uh, I do have. If I'm doing theoretical work, then I have like applied outlets. For example, something like this, where I'm able to, you know, take my take my scientific training and talk about science and try to go out and kind of positively impact the world to whatever degree that may be. But yeah, I, I definitely can understand the need to see what you're doing applied in that in academia. Sometimes you don't actually get to see that, um, and it's just kind of published. You know, a couple hundred people read it and then it's buried. And that's unfortunate, but a lot of the research that is done is kind of like that. Um, and hopefully some of it leads to other groundbreaking research yeah. that, you know, then can be applied to society. I mean, it's, it doesn't mean that it's not important. So I guess for people who are like tuning in and listening to this, you know, the work that's done in academia, of course, is, is very important, but sometimes the application takes a very long time before you can actually see it. So the time and money that's invested into it takes takes a while. Yes. Whereas in industry, as you just explained, Jackie, uh, you know, the, the budget is very much important. 
um, having, having results that can be used almost immediately or in the very immediate future is, uh, is paramount. I mean, it's about most important. I mean, it's just, these are just how businesses operate. So the, the academic university environment doesn't quite operate in the same sense that the business environment operates in. But hopefully the microscopes that you're using are about the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we use some great microscopes here, so. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> So with, the, so with the work that you're doing at CTL Group, uh, you know, we we're talking about building, building and construction materials. So clearly the benefit to society is, is would you say safety? Um, strength of like structural integrity? How would you, yeah. like, how would you describe the, like the, the services that you offer, I guess, packaged up in, you know, in, in petrography, geological science, um, and apply it to the way it benefits society, I guess, yeah. is what I'm getting at. Yeah, so um, I would say that we really determine the root cause of problems in the construction industry. Um, and then determining those issues just helps us avoid those problems in the future. Um, and yeah, like you said, the work that we do just, it, it keeps people safe, um, by making sure that the materials and the components being used in construction are up to standard. Uh, I also think that, like I said previously, uh, when we work on interesting or these groundbreaking projects, it just adds to the knowledge in the industry. So um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's how we impact society. Really interesting. And of course, I think as everyone can agree, having safe structures is super important. <laughs> I mean, yes. uh, I mean, our cities are, with, you know, they've been described as concrete jungles or just, you know, concrete everywhere, huge sky rises, um, and even, you know, outside of major metropolitan cities like Chicago. You have you have large structures, um, so concrete is basically used everywhere. It's a very popular building material, so making sure that it doesn't fail <laughs> is you know super important. It is very important. So, what are the interesting projects that you're working on right now? And I realize that some of them may be proprietary, so obviously you can't talk about those. Um, but I'm just curious for the projects that you can talk about, what exactly are you working on? Yes, so um, right now I have quite a variety. Um, I am working on shotcrete, um, a shotcrete pool uh, that's leaking. So uh, trying to figure out why the pool is leaking. Um, it has different plaster layers on the shotcrete as well. So we are not only evaluating the shotcrete, but um, looking at those layers to see if there's failure within the layers or between the layers. Um, another one I'm working on is just a simple air content analysis. So all concrete has, well, I should not say that. All, some concrete has air in it or um, 
air that was entrained into it. There's an air entraining admixture that's added to concrete to produce these little air bubbles. And, um, you know, it's, it's used a lot in the Chicago area because air bubbles are needed for freeze-thaw resistance. Um, what happens is in the winter, you have snow fall and then it heats up and that's that uh, snow melts, the water goes into the concrete. And if it doesn't have those little air void spaces to go to, it just goes into the rest of the concrete. And when it freezes again, that water freezes and it cracks the concrete. So um, right now I am just evaluating the percentage of air within a concrete sample. So that's another project. Um, and yeah, I have, uh, oh, I actually have a auditorium floor of a high school that has this epoxy flooring system on top of it. And they're getting these blisters uh, between the concrete, the underlying concrete and the epoxy coating system. So um, I'm evaluating where these blisters are coming from or what the, what the cause of these blisters are. So those are, uh, yeah, those are a few of my projects right now. So the epoxy one sounds really interesting to me because that doesn't sound geologic related, but more of like a material science project. So um, because you're, you're not dealing with like, um, like earth, earth related materials, you're dealing with something that was, uh, that came, came out of like some sort of industrial process where you have, you know, epoxy is clearly not a rock. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So um, I just, basically what I do is evaluate the underlying concrete um, to, oh, okay. to see if, you know, the concrete is the cause of this, this blistering. Um, I also evaluate the bond between the concrete and the epoxy. Um, we also have a coating specialist who does organic analysis on the concrete and uh, her analysis could point us into the direction of what the cause may be as well. We're not quite through this analysis. We actually just started with it. So I'm not quite sure what the cause is. Stay tuned, everyone stay tuned. Yes. <laughs> You'll figure it out soon enough. You'll yes. figure out soon enough what's going on here. Uh, yeah, that's that's the, those sound like really interesting projects and clearly um, geologically related. Um, so I am curious that about you've gone through you know a number of years of scientific training. You've clearly you know you've continued continued your education, your scientific training, I should say, at CTL Group. I was curious as to and I ask a lot of scientists this, how the scientific training, like the thinking, the methodology, all of that, um, how it, I guess, positively spills over or translate into everyday life for you. Like for example, like decision-making processes, things of that nature. Definitely, it's, it's definitely had an impact. Um, I would say that true science really 
it teaches us not to see in tunnel vision, if you will. Um, you know, the, the critical thinking or the analytical mind process that's developed with scientific training, um, it, it kind of translates into an awareness of self, of others, and also of information that's being presented to you. Uh, I tend to view everything in an analytical way now, and no matter like what or who the source is presenting information to me, I, I analyze that. Um, I also think that a big part of scientific training is research. So researching each aspect of a, the topic at hand is important. You know, no topic is just a one path track. Uh, like I said, with structural geology, it encompasses all these other subsets of geology. And just like at CTL, you know, we can't uh, solve an issue sometimes unless it incorporates all the other science, all the other science fields in our building. So I, I think, um, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely benefited me to have scientific training because I, I evaluate everything and everyone I come in contact with. So I think it's great that your scientific training has you know, had positive spillover effects into uh, your everyday life. And you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot with this platform is the benefits of just scientific thinking in general and learning how to think like a scientist, the critical thinking skills that come along with that. Now, I'm not saying that everyone has to be cut, you know, that everyone has to be a scientist and everyone's gonna you know, suddenly be an expert in a scientific domain that they have to do that in order to gain some critical thinking ability. But uh, yeah, I mean, just having a rudimentary understanding of, you know, being a skeptic that is like looking at a pro looking at a situation and, you know, not immediately jumping to conclusions or if somebody tells you something, you know, not immediately accepting it, but not immediately rejecting it either. So kind of finding a good balance there. Um, and how, how, how to, you know, step-by-step -step work through problems, like think your way through solutions uh, or towards a solution, think your way through a problem towards a solution. I know that for myself personally, that I really benefited in that aspect with the scientific training. And I'm glad to hear that you did as well. I mean, most, most of the scientists that I ask uh, agree that the scientific training that they received benefited them you know, obviously not in, not only in their area of expertise, but in kind of all areas of life that really a lot of these skills can be translated everywhere, particularly when it comes to, you know, you're talking about analytical thinking, et cetera, just working, again, working your way through a problem that this is very easily translated into any aspect of your life. I mean, people, you know, are interacting with each other constantly, not just in work environments, uh, so. Yes, I 100% I agree with that. It's really interesting to hear your story too. Uh, so it's, it's very interesting. And I, it was fun to talk about geology because I haven't actually had a chance to do that. And it has been so many years since I've actually you know, done anything geology related um, that all of these terms are kind of coming back to me. And you're talking about aggregate, you're talking about like you know, faulting, 
structural geology uh, terms, you know, the strike and dip and things of that nature. And, you know, going back to, you know, you're talking about your journey about how you ended up in geology, how you found yourself out in the woods because you lived next to a forest preserve and things like that. Uh, one of the kind of, the feel that I got for the average geology student was that they had just a profound interest in the planet and the respect for it simultaneously. It seemed like like a lot of geologists have, you know, which is funny because a lot of geologists, you know, end up going working in oil and gas. We know that that's, you know, we learn about global warming and things of that nature. And, you know, so that doesn't really compute. And that's kind of why I shifted away from geophysics is because that was the route that I was going down. I didn't really want to work in oil and gas. Uh, but I just, feel as though the the atmosphere of the geology department was like you have this versus other departments you you have like a profound respect for the planet um you've kind of left in awe of just how cool it is when you learn about it on a more uh intimate scale like learning about all the various planetary processes you know plate tectonics you know learning about the oceans and the various the, the way that the ocean columns are stratified or you learn about glaci glaciology. So yeah. I'm just curious, like, do you, are you, um, are you like a big, <laughs> I don't know how to word it. Uh, I don't want to say like, are you an environmentalist, but are you like, do you like going out and enjoying, I guess, nature and the planet and things of that nature? And oh, something, yes, something like definitely, that, yeah. definitely. Um, I, I have to hike in the mountains, like at least twice a year. Um, it's, it's how I plan my vacations, to be quite honest. Um, it's around some type of nature. So, uh, yeah, I would definitely agree that most geologists are really drawn to that nature, uh, aspect and respecting the planet. Yeah. And, and, and you're right, you know, we do have a lot of people that go into petroleum or, um, mining which isn't for the planet um, but it is definitely a, a financial provider for people getting into those industries yeah absolutely and i don't you know i don't want to come down hard on our fellow geologists oh. who work in oil and gas or mining or anything of that nature because you know clearly the entire economy that we've built around us over the past hundred years is dependent upon this resource still. So we can't, it can't just go away. Uh, also, we still need raw materials to build things. So mining is very important. And there are people working on trying to, to shift these industries to be more environmentally conscious. So I, I don't think that they'll ever go away completely, but making them, you know, greening them, so to speak, you know, just yeah. making them so they have a smaller environmental footprint, but yet we're still able to keep our society functioning in the same capacity that it is, and then also grow it too, right? Because society, yeah. you know, we are, there are more people coming online every day. <laughs> so um, we need places to house them. We need, you know, they're going to need automobiles. They're going to need some sort of smart device to communicate. So they need resources. Everybody needs resources. And Currently, energy is the most important resource and the primary source is oil and gas. So, you know, that can't go away overnight. Um, there are plenty of people trans helping to transition to like renewable energies and cleaner energies and things of that nature. Uh, and, you know, when it comes to raw materials, obviously you need, you need mining. Um, recycling is very important as well. Recycling the old used stuff and putting it back into newer things, but you're gonna need new raw materials as well. So 
um, and for the individuals who work in those, I, you know, I, I don't harbor any ill will. I just know for me that I wanted to shift away because I was going down the geophysics route and essentially I could end up in academia or I could go and work in oil and gas was basically my options. And I just decided to pivot more to the hardcore physics and move away from geology because I, that's what I wanted though for myself. And I'm not saying that everybody has to do that. Yeah, I know a lot of people that, uh, yeah, pivoted away from the geology aspect and, and even though they got their degree in geology, went the environmental science route um, for that purpose, that, you know, they were for the planet very strongly. And uh, we need we need both types of geologists out there right now, so. Yeah, absolutely. So one last thing I wanted to ask you. So if somebody, you, you know, you were talking about how you love to hike and things of that nature. Uh, where are some of the coolest geologically interesting places that you've ever been? Oh, goodness. Um, For those who are also inclined to perhaps have similar experiences on their vacations, because, you know, it's interesting if you don't, like here in Illinois, we don't have anything interesting geology unless you like glacial till, like there's yeah. just, it's just flat and uninteresting. And it's hard to, I think, develop a a real appreciation for nature or be left in awe by its beauty unless you actually go somewhere that's really geologically interesting. So perhaps people, perhaps you could give people some advice for Jimmy and who are listening. Yeah. Um, where um, they can go to find geologically interesting vacation spots. Yeah. Um, so I guess some of my favorites, uh, I really, so a couple years ago I went to Peru and I actually it's a, it's a very short hike, but um, it's Rainbow Mountain. Okay. And it's these, uh, and if people look it up, it's just this beautiful mountain with, it looks like a rainbow. It's all these different types of colors. Um, the rocks are basically weathered and they give off, you know, red, blue, green, and it's, it's just breathtaking when you see it. So I, I would recommend that one. Um, also, I I go to Utah quite often. Utah has a variety of uh, adventures you can go on. You know, it's it's pretty much for people that are adventurous. I think they uh, have a lot of people that bike. Uh, they bike like in the Arches National Park or Zion or you have part of the Grand Canyon, you have Dead Horse. Um, so there's, there's different types of uh, terrain in Utah. So I think if you, even if you go north, you have more of the, um, the mountains up there or the Rocky Mountains where the south is, is the arches that I'm talking about. And yeah, it was just, I've always been fascinated by Utah, so I highly recommend it there. Um, of course, I, I lived in Idaho for a bit, and the I there's there's something I love the Rocky Mountains. So I think anywhere in the Rocky Mountains is just a, a great location to go. And of course, they have uh, Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. Exactly, I've, which is a great place to start. I think for anybody that's you know, if you're looking to really experience the Rocky Mountains, that's a that's a gorgeous part. Um, yes. I've been there. Yeah. So that's I've a good. Have you been there as well? 
yes, I've been there a yeah. few times. I have some friends that live out there and uh, they, they let me, you know, follow them on, on trails that, you know, you don't really want to do by yourself the first time. Okay. So. Well, that's convenient for somebody who likes trail hiking. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think, I think that's a big plus about being a geologist is you have all these friends that they, they kind of go to all these different locations all over the U.S. Some of them are, you know, global. And so you could just, if you still have those connections, you just call them up and be like, hey, um, I'm, I'm thinking about coming to visit by you. Would you be interested in taking me out on a trail? And most often they say, yeah, so. And the importance of having a network. So, you know, you, what you were talking about earlier today, um, talking about networking at field camp and networking in graduate school. It's always yes. important to have people um, in your network, you know, when it, whether, you know, it's just friends or um, business networks or anything of that nature. But, uh, you know, one thing, one thing I was, uh, you mentioned um, in Peru about the Rainbow Mountain, uh, is, is that because of like different mineral compositions or something like that? Or do you, do you understand from a geology standpoint as to why, why that particular mountain is different colors? Yeah, it is the uh, weathering of those different types of minerals. Okay. So yeah. That's really interesting. I know exactly what you're talking about. I've seen pictures of it and it looks like something a like a five-year-old with finger paint, you know, with all these different colors and whatnot, because it doesn't even look real. It doesn't even look like, it's, it looks like something you would find uh, like literally on, on a canvas, not in real life. <laughs> exactly. And it's, you know, the pictures, they're, they're beautiful viewing them, but when you get there, wow, it's just, like I said, it's, it's breathtaking. It's just, yeah, you pictures, kind of think you'll never, you'll never see something like that in your life. And then you're yeah. there. Yeah, pictures, uh, I, I've done a number of trips myself and pictures don't ever seem to do it justice. Right, Never. exactly. They I mean, our camera technology has improved incredibly over the past, whatever, 100 years, particularly so with the, you know, the, 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 the cameras, how nice the cameras are in people's smartphones, but you still just can't seem to capture the beauty right. uh, of this gorgeous three-dimensional landscape on a, on a 2D, even a panoramic or anything like that. It just doesn't do it justice. And I think it's really interesting that you mentioned Utah uh, as one of your favorite spots. I actually did a trip with some friends because obviously we're in a pandemic, as you know, so we couldn't really go anywhere this past year. Um, I have a group of friends that I love doing uh, a trip with every year. And we really wanted to do like Oktoberfest in Germany because it's something that we, it's like on all of our bucket lists. Um, we enjoy beer. We enjoy delicious German food, so why not go to uh, why not go to Germany and experience Oktoberfest? Yeah. As you know, though, pandemic canceled, so we cannot do something like that. So we decided to do a road trip out west, and we did uh, primarily Utah, is basically where we focused on. Uh, I had never been there before, so we did a bunch of national parks. So the Zion, I did Zion National Park, we did Capitol Reef, which was, um, which is incredible. And then there was one more, it wasn't Arches, I can't remember the name of it. Oh, it was Bryce Canyon, that was it. We did uh, Bryce Canyon, so we did those three. And it was, well, breathtaking. I mean, I, I just, some of the hikes that we did were incredible. Yeah. I took lots of photos. 
doesn't oh, yeah. do it justice though. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, actually, I heard that the Rim to Rim Trail in Bryce Canyon, I heard that if you hike it through the night and then get to a certain point that apparently it's like one of the top 10 most beautiful sunrises in the world. So uh, that's that's on my bucket list. Okay. I have not heard about that. That sounds intense though. Yeah. Um, you know, hiking throughout the entire night and then making sure that you're there at sunrise. One thing that we did get to do, which was pretty cool uh, when we were at Zion, was they had just opened up Angel's Landing, the full, the full hike. So for those who are not familiar, there is like Angel's Landing, it's like a three to four hour hike in Zion National Park. And about halfway through, you're in a essentially like a chain section where it's like one or two people at a time because it gets very narrow. You're like super high up. Um, I've never seen cliff faces like that in my entire life. I probably only see something bigger than that if I went to Yosemite and saw the huge granite faces there, which is on my bucket list, but I haven't made it yet. Uh, but yeah, so we were able to actually hike this because it had just opened up like a day or two before and it was just incredible. It um, was definitely nerve wracking. So it's not for the faint of heart. However, I, it was it was worth the views. So I don't know if you've ever done that, but I highly I, recommend it. I'm actually going to do it in about four weeks. So okay. yeah. All right. So. That's, uh, any, that's any tips? Any tips you can give me are welcomed. <laughs> Yeah, just don't look down at certain points. Don't okay. look down. Anyway, Jackie, it's been fantastic talking to you. Uh, it's been super interesting. Definitely been fun kind of refamiliarizing myself with all of these geologic concepts, these terms, things of that nature. But where can people connect with you if they're interested? Yeah, so um, people can contact me via the CTL group website. Um, it's just ctlgroup.com. Uh, you can either go to our people section and find me in a list there, or you can specifically search for my name. Uh, you can also look for me on LinkedIn. So yeah, feel free to reach out. <laughs> Fantastic. And for those of you that are watching today's episode or listening, uh, thank you so much for stopping by. You know, definitely go ahead and share, hit that like button. You know, leave us a review. We're always interested in hearing your feedback and definitely stay tuned. Um, there's more great content coming in the future. Take care.